Last week we saw the world in which the young Ned Kelly came of age, a world fraught with desperation and violence. In such dire conditions as these, perhaps it isn't all that surprising that the scrappy lad would one day become one of the most notorious outlaws of all time, but his remains an interesting character study on the lengths one will go through to survive. What became of him after the arrest of his mentor, the bushranger Harry Power? What led to him becoming a full-blown outlaw? And what were the events that ultimately set the stage for his infamous last stand? Find out on part two of The Ballad of Ned Kelly, only on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. After Harry Power was carted away by local authorities, life returned to normalcy for Ned and his family, at least for a little while. It wasn't long before trouble came knocking once again at their doorstep, this time in the form of a hawker named Jeremiah McCormick. In October of 1870, he showed up at the Kelly residence, accusing Ben Gould, a friend of the family, of stealing his horse. He claimed that Gould had written an improper note to his wife, which had been wrapped around a pair of severed calves' testicles. Talk about a ballsy move. In reality, Gould had passed the note to Ned, who in turn handed it to one of his cousins to deliver to the childless woman. When the hawker returned later that day to confront Ned, the latter punched him in the nose. As a result, he was later arrested for his involvement in the letter incident, as well as physically assaulting McCormick, and was sentenced to three months hard labor for both charges at Beechworth Jail. Five months later, and five weeks before carrying out his full sentence, Ned was released, at which time he returned to the family lot in Greta. But the young man simply couldn't stay out of trouble for too long. Three weeks after coming home, a horsebreaker named Isaiah Wild Wright arrived in town to visit a friend, one Alex Gunn, the latter of whom had married Ned's older sister. The horse Wright rode in on, a chestnut mare, had been borrowed, so to speak, without the owner's knowledge, and had since been reported missing. The owner was none other than the postmaster of the town of Mansfield, some 54 miles, or 87.5 kilometers away. The night of Wright's arrival in Greta, however, the mare went missing, and Gunn himself lent Wright one of his own horses until she was found. She turned up that same evening, at which time Ned took her to the town of Wangarata in northeast Victoria, where he stayed for four days. Upon his return on April 20th, 1871, he was intercepted by a police constable, one Edward Hall, who directed him to the local police station under the pretense of having to sign some papers. In reality, he was suspicious of Ned, and believed the horse to have been stolen. Once there, Hall tried to grab Ned by the scruff of the neck, but failed, at which time the lad did all he could to resist arrest, including burying his spurs into the officer's thighs. Ouch. With the aid of seven bystanders, Hall was eventually able to subdue Ned, but not before pistol-whipping him. Also ouch. Ned and Gunn were subsequently charged with horse theft and sentenced to three years with hard labor. Both were sent to Beechworth Jail, with Ned being transferred to Her Majesty's Prison Pentridge near Melbourne, sometime while serving a sentence. Good behavior landed him another transfer, this time to a prison hulk, a ship that has been repurposed as a sort of floating penitentiary, on June 25, 1873, which was moored off the Melbourne suburb of Williamstown. On February 2, 1874, a full six months ahead of schedule, he was released for good behavior and soon returned to Greta once more, whereupon he discovered that his brother, Jim, had himself been imprisoned for horse theft and his mother had remarried, this time to an American named George King. It was around this time that Ned began gaining a reputation for himself as a particularly skilled boxer. His first match, on August 8, 1874, at the Imperial Hotel in Beechworth, was a noteworthy event, not just in his life, but for the community and its environs. To settle the matter over that selfsame chestnut mare for which he and Isaiah Wright had been imprisoned, the two squared off in a bare-knuckle fight that lasted for some twenty rounds before Ned was declared the winner, as well as the unofficial boxing champion of the entire district. Though defeated, Wright gained a newfound respect and admiration for Ned, and ultimately became one of his most enthusiastic supporters. 
Though elevated to the ranks of local legend thanks to that selfsame boxing match, Ned continued to dabble in crime, despite having been on the wrong side of the law and serving time in prison. Though he found honest work at a sawmill, and later as a builder's apprentice, he joined his stepfather's organized horse theft operation in 1877. It was here that Ned would meet some of the men of whom would one day be a part of his notorious gang of bandits. Comprised of Ned and Wright, as well as Joe Byrne, Alan Lowry, Albert Saxon, Aaron Sherritt, and Bricky Williamson, the group ended up stealing nearly 300 horses at the height of their operation, at least according to Ned's account, which could be taken with a grain of salt. However, some of the members of this group were also part of the Greta Mob, a ragtag band of bush larrikins, a larrikin being the Australian term for a particularly mischievous, rabble-rousing troublemaker, who wore flashy clothes and had garnered a reputation for being particularly rowdy. Ned's own brothers, Dan and Jim, were members of this latter group, as well as their cousins, Jack and Tom Lloyd. But it was in George King's horse theft operation that they landed themselves into the most trouble, when, in August of 1877, they stole 11 horses from a well-to-do local rancher named James Witty. Ned was responsible for rebranding said horses and selling them to none the wiser new owners, six of which he sold to one William Baumgarten, a horse dealer from Barnawartha, a town near the Victoria New South Wales state line. But the horses were soon listed as stolen, and local authorities launched an investigation, at which time, on November 10th that same year, Baumgarten and his brother Gustav were arrested for selling stolen horses. It wasn't long before all evidence led back to Ned, and the police issued a warrant for his arrest. What ensued was a cat-and-mouse game of sorts between Ned and the authorities that would prove to become the first lengthy and notable event in his career as an outlaw. Said warrant was issued for both Ned and his younger brother Dan on April 5, 1878. With the ringleader George King out of the picture, never to be seen or heard from again, his stepsons became the prime suspects. Six days later, on April 11th, word had reached the Greta police station that Ned had holed himself up at a sheep shearing shed, try saying that three times fast, in New South Wales. One Constable Strachan set out to apprehend him, while another, Constable Fitzpatrick, was ordered to the station to serve as relief duty in Strachan's absence. Before departing from the Benalla police station, where he regularly served, and well aware of the warrant out for Dan Kelly, Fitzpatrick volunteered to pay the Kelly household a visit on the way to Greta to arrest Ned's younger brother Dan. His sergeant agreed to this, but advised him to be careful. On April 15th, Fitzpatrick set out for the Kelly residence. Upon his arrival there, Dan was nowhere to be seen. Ellen, the matriarch, entertained the guest with conversation for the better part of an hour. But when Dan finally did show, he asked if he could be allowed to have dinner with his family before accompanying the constable back to the police station. Fitzpatrick consented and stood guard over him as the Kellys dined. Just seconds later, Ned burst in through the front door and fired at the officer, missing him. Seizing her chance, Ellen struck Fitzpatrick on the head with a shovel, while Ned fired two more shots, one of which clipped the policeman in his left wrist. Ned later claimed that, in the struggle, he hadn't recognized Fitzpatrick and had blindly shot at him, mistaking him for someone else. So it was that Ned retrieved the bullet from the constable's wrist while his mother dressed the wound afterwards. Thus, Fitzpatrick made the painstaking ride back to Benalla Station, at which time he reported the incident to his superiors. Naturally, a trial followed, though Ned and Dan were nowhere to be found. Instead, Dan's brother-in-law, Bill Skillian, as well as a neighbor, Bricky Williamson, and of course Ellen Kelly herself, were arrested and charged for their involvement in what came to be known as the Fitzpatrick Incident. The former two had become involved in the scuffle after Ned and his mother had respectively shot and struck the constable. While the three defendants claimed that Fitzpatrick had been drunk when he arrived at the Kelly residence to arrest Dan, the officer's doctor, who had treated him following the shootout, testified to the contrary.
The judge, one Redmond Barry, a figure who will come up again later on in the Ned Kelly saga, ended up doling out two six-year prison sentences for Skillian and Williamson, while Ellen was given three years hard labor, a punishment that was, even then, considered unanimously harsh by the defense, as she was nursing a newborn baby at the time. Regardless, the judge remained adamant and firm in his decision, and the trio went off to their respective prisons to serve time. So where were Ned and Dan Kelly in the midst of all this hullabaloo? As it turns out, the pair had gone into hiding at the height of the trial. Joined by Joe Byrne, formerly of George King's horse theft racket, as well as the Greta mob, and Steve Hart, a friend of Dan's, the four disappeared into the bush to set up a base of operations at a place known as the Wombat Ranges on the banks of Bullock Creek. There they made money distilling whiskey and sluicing gold. Provisions were supplied to them by locals who sympathized with the Kellys' plight, along with Ned's own cousin, Tom Lloyd. At this point in time, Ned was already known throughout his home state of Victoria, as well as neighboring New South Wales, as a hardened criminal. His reputation preceded him, and particularly among the poorer residents of the region, namely fellow Irishmen, or, like himself, Aussies of Irish descent, he had become a local legend of sorts. But his greatest achievements, if you will, were still to come, and it was only a matter of time before his name would intrinsically be linked with infamy and notoriety. Join me again next Thursday for the exciting and epic conclusion of the Ballad of Ned Kelly, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.